Welcome to Wellness Spring. I'm so delighted to introduce our guest speaker today, Jeff Granville, who is the founder and president of Mindful Presence, a mindful practitioner and coherence counselor, reverend and spiritual advisor, to name a few, but most importantly, a devoted father of eight children. And I'm so happy that a communal friend of ours, Tanya Castillo, introduced us. Welcome, Jeff, to Wellness Spring. Uh, thank you, Beverly. I really appreciate you having me on. And, and thanks to Tanya for uh, our introduction. She's a beautiful soul, and so are you. Thank you. Thank you. So, dear listeners, when Tanya first introduced us, I was blown away because I read about Jeff's journey on his website, and my heart was full of empathy, compassion, and total love and respect for both Jeff and his son, McCoy. So Jeff, as I said, is a devoted father, and one of his sons, McCoy, on December the 30th, 2014, developed a rare form of T-cell leukemia. And God bless him, he was only four years old. And I dread to think how you felt when you were told the diagnosis. As we mentioned before, a lot of my family have had leukemia, including my mother, and we all went to pieces. So Jeff, if you don't mind, could you tell the listeners a bit about your background where you grew up and you know your parents and siblings and so forth so they can get to know you before we delve in deep to this most incredible journey and I know the listeners are going to be overwhelmed and I'm sure their hearts are going to be open with love and compassion for you as well. Mm, thank you so much, Beverly. That's beautiful. And I feel it already. And yeah, I'm, I'm um, 60 years old, uh, born and raised in Anacortes, Washington, uh, which is about an hour and a half north of Seattle. And Fidalgo Island is the first island of the San Juan Islands. And I'm actually fifth generation. And my kids are sixth and grandkids are seventh generation from there back in the late, um, like 1880s and um, grew up um, on the water, um, on the beach, fishing and playing in the sand and uh, just really enjoy the outdoors. Um, I love hiking and biking and trail riding and um, spending time with my kids at the beach has probably been our, our most, most favorite pastime. And um, I, I grew up around boats and ended up going into the um, boat business I've built and repaired pleasure boats for my most of my adult life and um, really enjoyed uh, a wonderful following of customers who, of course, were wonderful mentors as well. Because if you're buying a $500,000 boat or a $5 million boat, you're obviously good at something. So I learned a lot from a lot of my customers and had wonderful relationships with them. And... Um, yeah, and I did that right up until the time when my youngest son, McCoy, uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. Wow. 
Um, what an amazing story. And it would, you would have been so in tune with nature growing up close to the water and, you know, just to work with your hands and to create and manifest something so magical and knowing that people are going to get a lot of love and joy about it. And what about your parents? Were, was your dad a marine engineer, for example, or your mother? Uh, no. No, um, my mom and dad were, um, you know, from Anacortes as well, graduated from Anacortes High School. And my dad um, was in the clothing business. Um, he had a, a store that um, sold uh, top brand suits for men. My mom worked with him. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 10. I was raised by my mom primarily. My dad was kind of in and out of the picture. And um, I have a brother and a sister older than me. And we grew up in Anacortes, out in nature, riding horses, riding bikes, and, and doing all that fun stuff. So I find myself connected to spirit most when I'm in nature. Uh, my paternal grandparents were Catholic and took me to church. And um, it was amazing how... I didn't really feel the presence of God in church, but I always felt it when my feet were in the sand at the beach, or I was climbing trees in the woods or out in nature. That's where I felt connection to spirit the most. Wow. Um, I can totally um, resonate with that because on my paternal and maternal um, side, my grandparents and a long line of them, they were all ministers in Presbyterian churches. And um, my parents were a bit out of the box. And, you know, we did go to church and then Sunday school. But when we were 12, they gave us the option, well, if you don't want to go, you don't have to. But I always, I didn't feel that connection with God or spirit, whatever you want to call it. But whenever I was in the water, going for a swim or in the sand, it was just so magical, you know, and I felt that strong connection. It, it's just bliss. And lately, as you know, I'm traveling in a camper van and we park by lakes or rivers and just spend time just sitting and being. So I'm, you know, quite envious on one level, but very happy that you had that wonderful experience of growing up in nature so, so tell us about um that dreadful night or day when you got the critical diagnosis of the life-threatening disease with mccoy yeah as you had mentioned my youngest of eight uh, my son mccoy he was four years old and it was um, December 29th when we got the diagnosis. We went into Seattle Children's Hospital. Um, he had had a, what the doctors thought was a, a virus and it was too far along for antibiotics. And his face had started to swell up and, and we didn't know why. And I traveled to my mom's house um, after the Christmas break and took my kids there to visit in Anacortes because we were living on a farm in Eastern Washington at the time. And so we got to my mom's house about one in the morning and I laid McCoy down in bed with me and he was having trouble breathing. 
if I held him on his side, he could breathe okay and sleep. But if he laid on his back, he was really laboring to breathe and breathing really shallow, like a child with a fever, but he didn't have a temperature. So when I got up in the morning, I called the local doctor in Anacortes, who I'd uh, seen known for 35 years. He actually delivered my oldest son. And um, it happened to be that he was there at the hospital for one day between Christmas and New Year's. He only came in one day and that happened to be it. And it was very fortuitous because without him really listening to me and the symptoms that McCoy was having, he probably would have got sent home and he would not have made it 24 more hours. So um, they did a chest X-ray and they thought he had double pneumonia. So they prescribed some antibiotics and I went back to my mom's house and after dinner, the phone rang and it was the doctor saying that the radiologist had looked at the films from the day and said, no, that's not double pneumonia. McCoy has a chest mass and that's really all they said. And he needs a CT scan. And um, we were to, if we couldn't get one approved in Anacortes, we were to drive to to Seattle. And, and that's what we did. Um, when I took off his pajamas to put his shirt on, I saw what looked like varicose veins across his chest. And I was really, you know, shocked at that, because of course, with eight kids, you think you've seen it all, but I had never seen anything like that before. And, and his face was swollen. And he was like, like I said, laboring to breathe. So when we got to Seattle Children's Hospital, they did a lab draw and his white blood cell count was over 400,000. And they pulled me outside the room and said, well, we did a lab draw. His white blood cell count is over 400,000. So he's either got leukemia or lymphoma. And of course, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. You know, it's that shot in the gut that you hope nobody ever has to get. But there I was standing at his bedside. And by then his eyes were completely swollen shut. So he couldn't see at all. And I'm standing there over his bed, literally with my hands in the air, asking God, why, why would you do this to my four-year-old son? And I remember saying, please take me, you know, let my son be healthy and just take me. And right then he struggled for a breath and I fell to my knees and I realized that I was given everything I needed to help him the most. And that was just to be there with him and not have him feel alone and afraid. And that was a very, very pivotal moment because being present in the moment with what truly is, is the only way to get out of whatever situation you're stuck in. Um, if I were to be angry at the doctors or angry at God out of alignment with spirit, then you can never be coherent in your own body if you're out of alignment with spirit. And that was a very, very important point and something we came back to several times throughout his journey um, he's been through a dozen operations and many, many procedures. And one of the things they needed to do was draw spinal fluid. And they have to check to see if new leukemic blasts passed the blood barrier into the spinal fluid. Because if they did, they would have to go one path with radiation and chemotherapy. 
But if the leukemic blast hadn't passed the blood barrier, they would go a different direction. And the hospital, actually throughout the United States, they have a policy that they cannot administer chemotherapy unless they pull spinal fluid and check to see if there's uh, cancer cells in the spinal fluid. So they were actually stuck surgery surgical team couldn't pull spinal fluid because they couldn't sedate him if they sedated him he would lose cardiorespiratory tone and his heart would collapse his he actually had so many tumors around his heart they said it was like his heart was trying to beat inside 100 rubber bands and the reason his head was swollen his face was swollen is that there was so many tumors around his superior vein blood could go to his head but wasn't allowed to return to his heart. And his airway was down to the size of a pencil lead. So they were stuck. They didn't know what to do. So it, it turned out that he had to have a lumbar puncture without sedation. So that was the first big procedure that he had to live through. Wow, I've got, I had goosebumps all the way through it that. And, you know, and I've read the story, but to hear you say it, you know, it's um, really heart wrenching. And as I said, I've been a registered nurse and I know how um, dangerous it is or can be um, having a lumbar puncture if someone moves or jerks suddenly and how painful it can be just from the feedback one of parents and other family members and two from my, my patients so um i know it was a very um transformative process would you like to tell the listeners what happened during that process because i think it was mind-blowing yes yes thank you um yeah the um there was a doctor and a nurse that were at bedside with me when he needed to have a lab draw and when he needed an IV placed and when he needed oxygen. And they had seen the way I was able to talk him through it. And his mom, his mom and I were just split up at the, at the time he was diagnosed. And she was traveling from Eastern Washington. And so she wasn't there for the first day. So when he had the uh, he had the lab draw and the IV placed, I was there with him. And when she showed up, I stepped out of the room for a cup of coffee the first time I'd taken a break in 24 hours. And when I came back in, there were two big male nurses and a doctor and his mom hovering over him, holding him down and speaking in loud, forceful voices for him to hold still. And I set my coffee down and I said, what's going on? Step away from my son. And they said, well, his lungs need to be cleared. So we're trying to put on what looks like a big inhaler, like for asthma, mm -hmm. but it had a mask and a long cylinder on it. And I said, okay, well, what has to happen? They said, well, he needs to take eight breaths through this inhaler four to four times, four sets of eight. And I said, okay, well, let me just give me a minute. And I, I bent down to McCoy 
And of course, his eyes are swollen shut. So he can't see. All he is, is, you know, inside his own head without any visual. And it's like the equivalent of an alien autopsy for a child. I mean, he's, he's there in the bed. There's adults talking forceful, trying to hold him down and force him to do something. And the, the mask is actually putting out air. It's forcing air into him. So I said, okay, McCoy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, an astronaut. And I said, well, what don't they have in space? And they, he said, oxygen. And I said, so this is kind of like astronaut training. And so I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put our foreheads together and we're going to breathe in unison, which is something we developed for the lab draw and the IV placement is that since he couldn't see if I touched his forehead to my forehead, he knew right where I was and he knew I was there guarding him. And my voice was really resonant and we breathed together, which at the time I didn't understand, but when you breathe in unison, you unify your heartbeat and the autonomic swing between sympathetic and parasympathetic joins together. They become entangled and trained together. So he felt very comfortable with that. And so what I said, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move this towards your face, but I'm not going to put it on there. I just want you to feel the air. And when you breathe in, I'll go ahead and put it up to your face. So his air and that air were combating each other. And it, it worked perfect. So the doctor and the nurse who witnessed that were in a care meeting with 40 other care providers. They had two huge monitors showing the MRI of his airway and his superior vein and his heart. And they were saying, we are chasing something we can't catch. We have nothing mechanical or chemical we can do for your son. But we, what we think we can do is get permission for you to be in the operating room while he gets a pick line in play installed and he gets a lumbar puncture and you can try to talk him through it. So I asked a few questions, like they talked about the heart lung machine. And I said, well, can you put that on first? Nope. He'll lose consciousness and respiratory tone. There's really nothing we can do. So they got permission for me to scrub in and be at his bedside. And I went in and went forehead to forehead and we breathed in unison while he laid on his side to keep the pressure off of his chest. And what I did, I had read Shaki Gawain's book, Creative Visualization. And I knew that by envisioning an outcome, you can help create it. And so what I did is I talked him down are the river we had floated for the last two summers. And he's only four. So at two and three years old, he was sitting on my lap, roll, going down the river with some whitewater, which is very fun, but it's also scary. And he really had to trust me. And then I talked him down our ski slope that we had skied for the last two winters, where he would, I would hold out my ski pole and he would hold on to it. And at two and three years old, he's skiing down the hill, which is, of course, very fun and exciting, but also scary. So those two images that I, I talked about every detail, I could think of the light reflecting off the water, the way the powder felt 
coming up on our face and described in detail. And when I got him into a very calm, coherent state, which I later learned is a theta brainwave, mind out of body state, much like hypnosis. And he got into this state of being where we were a coherent total and he was able to have the pick line installed and they did the lumbar puncture without him batting an eye. They, they got three vials of spinal fluid out and he didn't even move, didn't even move at all. And that's with no painkillers, no anesthesia. And it was like, he couldn't even feel it. He was mind out of body. And that just absolutely blew me away. And everybody, all the 40 care providers in the room that were waiting to give him emergency triage when he crashed. And with the lumbar puncture, another important thing is there were four doctors ready to hold him down in the fetal position because they have to open up the spine to get the needle in. And the nerve endings, the nerves around the spinal uh, column are the most sensitive in the body. So they were ready to hold him down. And I said, no, please, you can lay hands on him, but don't restrict him. The, the easiest way to start a fight or a battle is to try to restrict somebody. If you've ever been restrained, you, 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 nobody likes that. Nobody would like that. And especially not a four-year-old that can't see what's going on. So they just laid hands on him and he, he was able to, of course, hear my voice and we breathed together. And I noticed that he was like giving a little snort or a snore every fourth or fifth breath. So what he was doing is he was going into theta, like he was going to go to sleep, but my voice would pull him back out. So he was dipping in and out of theta and he literally was mind out of body and they were able to do um, the procedures with without a problem at all. That, that's absolutely incredible, you know, because if you think of the alternative, because I know they told you that without this operation, he could die. And um, just to hear those words that your son, you know, there's nothing we can do, because if we um, do the alternative, his heart is going to collapse and Either way, he was going to die. So, oh my goodness, what was it like when you actually heard the news? Oh my gosh. The doctor, I'll never forget, there was a young um, oncologist that was chosen for his steady hands to put the needle into the, to do the lumbar puncture. And we were just really entrained in our breathing and neither McCoy or I were aware that the needle had already been put in. He said, I'm going to put the needle up against your skin. And he said, can you feel that? And um, McCoy didn't respond. So he put the needle in and he says, well, we did it. We got three vials of spinal fluid. And I said, do you hear that McCoy? And he kind of chuckled. He gave a little chuckle and all 40 care providers in the room, they went from, you know, tears to laughter and amazement. And it, it was very, it was so profound because after they were able to draw the spinal fluid, they were able to give him chemotherapy. And within a few hours, his swelling had gone down and he could actually open his eyes and see. So there we were in the ICU. 
I'm bed sharing with him. I've got McCoy in one hand and I've got my smartphone in the other, my iPhone. And I had this amazing sensation of being the eye of the storm, being the calm in chaos. And it, I remember very, very distinctly that it was like the room was thick with energy and it was real tingly. And it was like everybody was going in slow motion. We were in this calm. And it, it actually turns out that when you get in a coherent state, you can reach gamma brainwave and experience what's called tachopsychia. And it happens in a near-death situation where your autonomic consciousness says, this is dangerous. We have to record more information per second so that we can survive this another time. And it was a, a really strange sensation. And I, I was searching. I had this coming back to me, eye of the storm, eye of the storm. And I found Nassim Haramin, a quantum physicist, he was giving a, a, a lecture in Barcelona, and he said, anybody can tell you the velocity of the wind. I want to know the math of the eye. I want to know the math of singularity. And I was hooked. It was, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And he, he actually said that as Einstein theorized 100 years ago, a photon is both a wave and a particle at the same time. They oscillate between wave and particle at the speed of light. And so do every, so does every atom in your body. And Nassim Haramin says that when we pray or meditate or get into that coherent singularity, being mindful, that we're rhythmically aligning that oscillation between wave and particle with all the cells in our body, and you actually become more wave than particle. You're more energy than matter, and you are in your divinity, and it's the ultimate state of receivership. And that's why, like, my, my podcast is called The Physiology of Our Divinity. It's how, like, the workshop is how to biohack the physiology of your divinity. So using breath work, using heart coherence to become that singularity, you can actually become the eye of the storm and then fit through the eye of the needle. Like, anytime there's an operation or an interview or a... Uh, anything in life that once you pass through it, you'll never be the same. That's a moment in time where when you become that singularity, when you become that eye of the storm, that calm and chaos, then you can control the trajectory of the outcome. Because like, you know, Ram Dass and Tim, Tim Leary proved, the set and setting determine the experience and the experience determines the outcome. So that's how we were able to repeat that over and over and over again. And ultimately, four years ago, when he needed to have a kidney transplant, he was able to go through an eight hour kidney transplant without an epidural and zero pain meds. And he was up and walking in a day, running in two days, and out of the hospital in nine, unprecedented. And so from the very beginning, lab draw, and the, the oxygen, and the lumbar puncture, we were able to recreate that coherent state over and over and over again. 
So that's why I started the nonprofit so that I can return that gift. Because as we know, my beautiful friend, Joe Bolte Taylor, who I've had on my show, who, who had the amazing Ted talk, my stroke of insight, our right brain is divinity. Our left brain is matter. It's the 3d world. And when you can slow down the chatter of your left brain and become coherent in your body, you open up the divinity and you can receive the download. That's where every poem, every song, every math equation, every invention is done when you're, is created when you're in the moment. I mean, how many times have you heard a songwriter say, I don't know where it came from. I just jotted it down on a napkin and you know, no genius takes credit for it. It's, it's divinity speaking. And that's why we say we're creating that state of receivership for divinity to speak. Wow, you've covered so much there. And <laughs> <laughs> as you know, I absolutely love Nassim Harameen and we were, we were blessed. I um, invited him to Monaco and he spoke there on similar stuff and mainly the atom and he had the whole room transfixed and um yeah just to go in that coherent state but before we go further into it i think it's remarkable because that was going to be one of my questions how did you know what to do because you hadn't had any formal training but um you'd read the story in the book but had you done anything like head-to-head -head with McCoy before at any age? Had you done it with anyone? Or it just came to you out of the blue to do this? Yeah, the, the, the only real experience I had with that is, like you said, I have eight children. And I've been very close to all my kids. I would feed them. I would burp them. I would bounce them to sleep. And... I have a very resonant voice. My vocal cords are very resonant. And I've always held my babies with their head up to my throat. And I would say, daddy's here. It's okay. And I would calm them down with that. But I never, you know, tried to match their breathing or entrain their heart rhythm. It was just the only real natural thing I knew was to really hold them close and to use my voice to calm them down and usually bounce with a rhythm and pat their back with a rhythm. And it, it's so funny because one of my older daughters, Hallie, she's got her master's in women's health and she's a midwife. And she's like 30 years old when this happened. And I was describing it to her in person and I was recreating that rhythm in my voice. And she said, my eyes started to drift. I started to go out because she remembered in, innately inside of her that that's how I used to, you know, take care of her when she was little as well. So it's, it's inside of us. It's in our memory. It's in our cellular memory. Mm -hmm. So I did that with McCoy. And then when he really needed it, that was the go-to. And it, it's something that he'd experienced with me. I helped keep him calm, you know, down the ski slope and down the river and just bouncing him to sleep. So that was the foundation, but no, no formal training. I, like I said, I read the book, The, the um, Creative Visualization by Shakika Wayne, and I read The Celestine Prophecy by James Redford. And there was many 
things in those books that kind of led me that direction. Um, but I honestly didn't think too much about that at the time. It just kind of came out. And I give credit to divinity. I give credit, call it God, whatever source, quantum physics, doesn't matter to me what human label we use. Source energy will always give you the right download when you need it. If you become coherent and you listen, you will get the message. It's like the, you know, the ancient Hawaiian practice of Ho'oponopono. They say, if your cup is full with human windings, you have no room for divinity. So getting your, your, your cup empty out of human windings gives room for the download and the gift. And like I said, we were gifted that at the time. And that's why I have the nonprofit so we can return that gift to humanity. Yes, um, it's like when um, mothers see their child under a car or something, they get that strength to lift up the car and save them. Um, can you tell us all about your nonprofits? And I know you've done lots of training with um, remarkable people since this happened as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, about five years ago now, um, a friend of mine, uh, Bonnie, and I, she helped me co-found it. We um, started a nonprofit called Mindful Presence, spelled like gifts, TS at the end. And um, we say we bring the gift of mindfulness and coherence and controlled breathing to pediatric patients, families, and care providers. And I've worked with, like, we lived at the Ronald McDonald House for four and a half years during McCoy's journey. And the average stay for a family is two to three months. So we met hundreds of families coming through there. And I, I've got to work with quite a few families during that time. And then pre-COVID, I was able to go to the hospital and go to the Ronald McDonald House and have workshops. But then once COVID happened, it kept us away from that. So we went on to an online, a virtual presence. And I opened up, um, I started as a mindfulness practitioner and coherence coach at the Center for Healing Neurology in Seattle. And we... Um, also started workshops with the Center for Spiritual Living in Seattle. So I opened it up to the general public, because like I say, if we can have this work in a pediatric environment, then it can work anywhere. So what we learned in that pediatric environment works throughout humanity. So through the Center for Healing Neurology, they will refer some of their most stuck patients with autoimmune diseases like neuropathy and POTS and Lyme disease. And they've tried everything. They're on multiple medicines, been to numerous doctors throughout their life. But it turns out that when they refer someone to me, I don't even look at their diagnosis or prognosis because what I teach is the same to every person because I had this one amazing care recipient who went through something nobody should ever have to endure and she carried it inside of her for 40 years and she was able through learning the breath work learning the coherence breathing listening to podcasts listening to joe dispenza listening to bruce lipton nasim haramin she just gobbled up everything and 
she said, when I did this, I have this technique called STIR. It's somatic trauma imprint release. And it's done through coherent breath work. And then you put pressure on myofascia tension in your chest and in your pelvis. And it releases the somatic trauma. So it's called STIR, somatic trauma imprint release. And when Bonnie and I were working with her, she lucidly hallucinated the trauma that happened 40 years ago that she hadn't even remembered. And she got up and she just very articulately and calmly recounted it with no emotional charge. And she was a shut-in. She had to go into a dark room. She couldn't come out. She couldn't drive. She couldn't interact with her kids and husband. And she was able to, after a few sessions at home, come to a clinic where Bonnie and I worked on her and she had this lucid memory. And when she normally would have trouble articulating a single sentence, she just spit this out in paragraphs. And I said, do you realize how articulate you just, and, and such, so such a low emotional charge, you re reaccounted this occurrence, this, this trauma that happened to you. And she said, well, coherent breathing leads to coherent heart, coherent thoughts and emotions. And I'm like, that's, that's my bumper sticker right there. That is exactly it. So it really doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. And of course, you never want to believe the prognosis because anything is possible. So when we can learn, when we can expand our awareness and our knowledge about what's possible in our physiology, then we can change the outcome. Oh my God, that's incredible. And um, going back to the doctors at the time, they would have probably been mind blown because for them, because they're taught about medicine and surgery and that's the only option, that would have been out of their radar to believe that could be possible. So do they invite you back or do they want to do any case histories or look into it more? Because um, it's no short of a miracle what um, happened that day. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really good point, a really good question, Beverly, because it was the doctors and the nurses that witnessed what happened over and over and over again that encouraged me to start a nonprofit to bring this gift to other people. They said, what you've done needs to be recreated for other people. So they encourage it, but it's the administration that that holds you off. It's it's getting past the administrators because I worked with one of the doctors and he'd been around Seattle Children's for about 40 years. And he witnessed what happened with the lumbar puncture all the way through to the kidney transplant. And we had a conversation. He said, when I started 40 years ago, the doctors and the administrators would meet once a week and we could solve problems like this and bring these modalities forward. He goes, now I don't even know who they are. We don't even meet. They're so remote and distant and detached from what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis that 
they balk at it because, well, I don't have a PhD and it hasn't been researched and the legal team says no. And actually the Ronald McDonald house as well, their lawyers got a hold of it and they said, Oh, well, we can't have him in here unless it's approved by the hospital. So it's, it's that dissonance between the care providers and the administrators and the legal team that make it so hard to cross that barrier. But having the doctors witness what happened, they want it to, they, they, I've actually had this one doctor, Jamie Stokes, she was in the transplant team when he had, a, he had to have a bone marrow transplant and she's from Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And he went through an amazing, horribly, horribly uh, scary time. We were in the hospital for 62 days. He was near death many times from an epiphenomena besides, you know, besides the bone marrow, leukemia and bone marrow transplant. They gave him some medicine, um, tacrolimus, that he had an adverse reaction, like a one in 10 million reaction. And it caused a epiphenomena called TMA, thrombotic microangiopathy. And what it does is it programs the T cells to kill every red blood cell in the body. So he was being ravaged by his own immune system. And because of our coherent state and being able to receive the medicine and treatment, this doctor met us outside. We were getting into the car and she was coming down the stairs and she said, Oh, Jeff, I'm so glad I ran into you. I'm so happy you guys are getting to go home because most kids that go through something like that don't get to go out the front doors. They go out the wrong, the back door. Right. And she said, we all know as doctors that it's 50% what they do and 50% the energy of the room because they, they give the equivalent of battery acid to kids in their bloodstream to kill the bone marrow, to kill the cancer cells. And then they try to keep them revived. They try to resuscitate them. They do enough to kill them, but they keep them alive. So she said, we're so grateful for what you're doing because like she said, it's 50% what we do and 50% the energy of the room. So that can be whatever state, whether it's whether you believe in God, whether you uh, laugh, whether you, you know, whatever it is that keeps that energy good and positive in the room. So yeah, the doctors know it, the nurses know it, they all want it, but it's getting through that red, red tape of the bureaucracy that makes it so hard. Oh, fingers crossed one day that will happen because it's so needed. And um, so can you tell us more about how can people contact you? How do people do? Is it all done online now? And I know that you've always been passionate about the science behind mindfulness. So can you explain a bit more about that as well, please? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as as we got through um, all these procedures, I had not read any of the books that I've now read. I had found it on my, like um, a YouTube of Bruce Lipton, The Biology of Belief. I saw Joe Bolte-Taylor's TED Talk, her, My Stroke of Insight. Um, I, I reached out to all of these 
learned masters that are teaching these different modalities. And after McCoy was out of the woods, so to speak, I started reading their books because I was looking for language, scientific language, to explain the miracles and the processes that we were doing. And so, um, you know, when, when, you, when you read about the, the science behind heart math and heart intelligence, and then you learn from um, Dan Siegel and his Mindsight Institute, how the brain is wired and Joe Bolte Taylor about how we can get to our divinity through our right brain. And we learn that our heart speaks to the brain and mind body in eight different ways. And depending on your upbringing, how your brain is wired and it creates your belief systems. And then you have Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza and Candace Pert, like her book, Molecules of Emotion, that show how your physiology is affected by your belief system. And then when you can come to zero, like Ho'oponopono, or find the seat of witness, like Michael Singer um, um, in his book. Um, so you, it's his book, The Untethered Soul. Took me a minute there. But, and like um, The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle's book and then create a visualization. So I've created this circle of books. It's this, like all the teachings of the learned masters so that it shows that every human experience follows the same circle. It's like the hero's journey. And it's based on your alignment to spirit, your heart communicates to your brain and mind body, and it creates your reality. And when you're aware of that and you know that, then you can biohack that physiology of divinity and you can change the outcome by creatively visualizing a new outcome. So I give credit to all of those learned masters for teaching what they do. And my real gift is coalescing everything into a practice and using their teachings as the science behind it. So that's really what I'm working on by doing my interviews in my podcast. And, and um, I offer that information on the website. And like you said, people can reach me through my website. My email is jeff at mindfulpresence.org. And through my nonprofit, I never charge a penny to anybody in their moment of need. I, I look for private and corporate sponsorship donations to the nonprofit so that I can offer this gift, re-gift it back to humanity at no charge to the people in need. And right now I'm not financially supported. I work another job two days a week just to maintain myself and my family. And then I volunteer my time the rest of the week. Oh, you're such an amazing soul to be of service and, you know, to give so graciously. Um, I'm so glad that you're here on this planet and um, mm -hmm. guiding us like a beautiful um, bright star. And um, mm -hmm. I've read your um, wonderful testimonials by Dr. Bruce Lipton and Bruce Cryer, the um, CEO of HeartMath, the former one, and they're just outstanding, just, for the listeners, you know, please read 
read the testimonials and you will see what an incredible soul and what these great masters actually think of Jeff. You know, he's truly amazing and he's contributing vastly to the science um, behind mindfulness and helping so many people on their pathway. And it's so gracious of you to donate your time for free. And I, I can see a book coming out there, Jeff. And, um, <laughs> and I know you've got other projects on the go, but um, if you'd like to share, or maybe we can save that for um, a future talk, it's entirely up to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am, I'm really in hot pursuit of a number of things. We have a wellness center that we have a vision for here in Seattle so that we can isolate our modalities away from the standard model and show that we can create better outcomes. Um, we're looking for funding. We're looking for an angel investor who wants to have a legacy project. We have all the people in place, all the modalities. We have the facility, everything there. Uh, Bonnie and I co-invented a product that brings coherence to anybody who would use it. Um, we, uh, I do have um, some rumblings of a book in me, um, a couple different things, uh, too much for one book. And like I tell people, I'm still living the story, so I'm not ready to fully tell it yet. Um, and then, the, like I said, this circle of books, this, this, this path we take, this spiral of ascension that we can take instead of a spiral of descension, because like Carl Jung says, until we bring the subconscious conscious, it'll control our life, but we'll call it fate, right? So once we're aware of it, then we can bring a new outcome, we can change the outcome by becoming aware of it. So the I'm, I'm looking to have a roundtable discussion with all these learned masters and have them weigh in on, okay, how did McCoy get through a lumbar puncture without sedation? How did he go through an eight-hour kidney transplant without an epidural and without pain meds? Let them weigh in and also how then can we bring it to humanity? And you mentioned Bruce Cryer, who is an amazing man, a beautiful soul. I love him like a brother. Um, and he wants to host and be the moderator for this roundtable discussion. And I'm trying to reach out to Deepak Chopra and to Nassim Harameen and Dan Siegel. And I've already, I've already interviewed Bruce Lipton and Joe Bolte Taylor and, and Thomas Verney. What an amazing friend he's become. He wrote the book 40 years ago, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. And he wrote um, the book, The Embodied Mind in the spring. And um, it came out and it, it's just, it's, taken academia by storm. So, you know, the, these learned masters all are participating because like you said, they see the story. And when you get an endorsement from Bruce Lipton, he doesn't give those away. I mean, he oh. gave it to me. He didn't charge for it, of course. That's not what I mean, but he doesn't endorse much. They don't step out and risk their 35, 40 year reputation without it being legit. So, I am going to call on all of those learned masters to contribute to this program, to the wellness center, to the books, to um, 
the, the program that we want to run with the roundtable discussion. So lots going on. And I love it. It's, um, you know, we started out by talking about being in the boatyard business. And I love that in a lot of ways. But I've never felt more comfortable in my own skin. I love my life. This is the calling of my soul. It's, it's in my Akashic future to do this. And um, in, in when what we know about uh, quantum physics and non-locality, there is no such thing as space and time. So the distance between me and that outcome, there's no gap. Exactly. It's already happening. And as you mentioned before, with your procedures with um, McCoy, it only needs one of you to visualize the outcome to hold yes. it for the both of you. So the procedures happened easily because you kept holding that outcome, the, the final yes. um, thing. So I know your center is going to happen. And I know it's going to be a protocol for many centers. You know, it'll be happening around the world. I can feel it. It's amazing. Oh, and, thank you. And I'll write in our notes to accompany this, all the your website and so forth. And people listening, please give generously because this is for our future, our children's futures. And if you believe in past lives and future lives, it's for our future lives as well. And I'm curious to know, I know the time is running out. I'm curious to know how is McCoy today? And what does he think about all this? Because he is also a creative genius. And he is such um, a bright shining star for all the pediatrics that you've been meeting all the other children and the thousands of children you've helped over these years. How does he feel? It must be a lot of pressure on his shoulders as well. Well, he's trying to be a normal 12 year old right now and he's doing a good <laughs> job of it. He's you actually he's doing so well, you would never know what he's been through unless you saw the scars on his body. And he he this is him. It is his soul's calling. This, I believe in a soul's journey. I believe in a, a soul plan and agreement with God, divinity. And I believe that he is a very old soul that raised his hand and said, I will go to earth. I will bring this forward. And my job is to tell the story. My job is to integrate, to coach, to guide and to integrate and speak for him and speak for children who can't speak, who don't have the words and put language to miracles. And he's doing very well. The nonprofit is for him. It is of him. And he will carry that torch someday when he's ready. He has also been with me when I've worked with young children who are afraid of needles. And we demonstrate how we put our foreheads together and breathe and how we emulate the shot and we practice it over and over to dissipate the charge because the brain doesn't know the difference between a story and a real event and we can create a new outcome by rehearsing the procedure and he is amazing kids he loves babies every every baby loves him and he connects with every child every kid and um, this is something he's going to carry forward. 
And I have my oldest daughter, Heidi, as a vice president and a spiritual guider. She's a clinical hypnotherapist and a death doula, and she's involved. And her husband is my IT guy. And so it's very much a family thing. And I look forward to passing that baton, passing that torch. And um, yeah, it, it's an amazing thing. Yes, I'm just on a high listening to you and um, resonated so much. So um, on that note, I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you for giving up your precious time today. And also for that lovely breathing meditation that you gave me right at the start of the show. And I'm just wondering, I think it would be a good idea just to run through that so people could have a feel and experience because your voice is so calming and it was like being in hypnosis and it was instant you know it's just remarkable so would you mind just doing a quick one and we'll finish on that note so they've got the experiential you your your treatments and then uh, fingers crossed everybody will listen and share this video and share your amazing story Wonderful. Thank you, Beverly. And I, I want to say too, thank you for the journey you're on and the research that you've done and the history you've, uh, you've had through the medical system to know that this is important and to bring it forward. And like you said, nothing happens in the universe without an observer. If somebody is sick and stuck, it takes a care provider, a caregiver to be there with them and witness this back into humanity. And that's what we do. It's like Joe Dispenza says, when someone like McCoy or somebody has something rare, they're putting a footprint in the quantum unknown. And if we go out there with them and witness their wellness back into humanity, then all humanity can follow it. And that's what we're doing. And that's what you touched on. It's so important what you said. I wanted to make sure we said that. We, we really want to illustrate that point. So yeah, our, our breathing exercises, there's four of them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through, I'm going to talk about the first three, because the fourth one is the stir technique, and it's advanced. Um, so when we're triggered, and we're stuck in fight or flight, the autonomic nervous system isn't swinging between sympathetic and parasympathetic in its natural state of homeostasis. We get triggered and we get stuck when we have angst or anxiety or stress in our life, which there's plenty of reasons, plenty of input out there to keep us stressed and stuck. So the first breathing exercise is when you notice that you're feeling triggered, when you're stuck, the reset breathing is amazing because you take a four second nasal inhale as sharp and as strong as you can and then a force or an eight second oral exhale with the o sound and we do that one time and what that does is when you take in a deep nasal inhale it triggers the sympathetic nervous system at a higher point than you're stuck in and it kind of gets the peg off the needle so it'll start that swing and then when you do an eight second oral exhale it creates the parasympathetic. So then you start the swing. And then the second breathing exercise is the controlled breathing, where you gently do a nasal inhale for five seconds, 
and then a gentle oral exhale for six seconds. And what that does is that it controls, it entrains your heart. So when we jumpstart it like a defib with the reset breathing, it'll start the swing. And then when we use the gentle five seconds in the nose and six seconds out the mouth with the ah sound, the vocal cords vibrate the vagal nerves and release serotonin into the bloodstream and actually spray it on the heart to calm it down. And then we reach for our wrist. And then instead of counting seconds, we count heartbeats. And you'll notice that when you breathe in your nose, it triggers the sympathetic nervous system and your heartbeat speeds up. And when you breathe out your mouth, it triggers the parasympathetic and your heartbeat slows down. So when you make a biophysical connection to your heart with your hand on your pulse, your brain, your pulse, and your heart are entrained together. And you'll notice that your heartbeat speeds up when you breathe in and slows down when you breathe out. And that is your biophysical connection to homeostasis. And you're verifying that you're, you're, you're in homeostasis. So that was kind of a long description, but we're going to run through it. This only takes like three minutes. And if, you, if you're going to dedicate 30 minutes a day to your health, do it three minutes, 10 times a day, and you will create homeostasis in your blood chemistry throughout your day. Okay, so we ready? Yes, absolutely. Okay, we're going to do the reset breathing. Four seconds in the nose, eight seconds out of the mouth with the O sound. Ready? Yeah. Go. Two, three, four. Oral exhale. O, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, gentle in the nose. Two, three, four, five. Oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four, five, six. In the nose. Gentle out the mouth with an ah. Ah, three, four, five, six. Gentle in the nose. Three, four, five. Oral exhale. Ah, two, three, four five, six, one more of those, gentle in the nose, three, four, five, oral exhale, ah, two, three, four, five, six, okay, find your pulse on your wrist, keep breathing, when you find your pulse, breathe in your nose for five heartbeats, not seconds, oral exhale silently, for six heartbeats and then gentle in the nose for five heartbeats oral exhale for six heartbeats and really notice when you breathe in your heartbeat speeds up and when you exhale your heartbeat speed slows down especially on four five and six like stair steps going down Breathe in for five heartbeats, and then oral exhale for six heartbeats. Okay, so that is the three breathing exercises that'll get you unstuck. Controlled breathing will entrain your heart, and then we follow the heart by going to our pulse. And when we verify, we get the biophysical connection 
we create homeostasis in our body and that's our sanctuary space. And that blood chemistry can last for hours at a time. Just like if you have it a negative trigger, a toxic blood chemistry can happen, can last for hours. So if you get triggered in a negative way, five times a day, you're going to have bad, bad blood chemistry all day long. But if you can do this for three minutes, 10 times a day, you will have a good blood chemistry slows down that left brain chatter of angst and gives power to your right brain of divinity. So you're biohacking the physiology of your divinity right there. Wonderful. And I do feel amazing. So thank you very much. And uh, you're very welcome. So I look forward to um, following your progress and um, and I look forward to being interviewed by you one day as well. So see if I will put you on the list. <laughs> Be keep I'll put all the information with this recording so you can follow the lovely Jeff on Facebook and his website and all the lovely works that he's doing. And of course, you can donate to his wonderful cause. So thank you. Have a wonderful day, Jeff. And big hugs. Thank you, Beverly. You and McCoy. Mm, thank you so much. I feel that heart and soul. Thank you so much for what you do. Pleasure. Thank you.